If you'll open your Bibles this morning to two books this morning, we're going to primarily be studying the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But we're also going to turn our our attention to Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9, uh, because today is Palm Sunday, and I just really felt like the Lord gave us uh, a pathway to, to study well Revelation chapter 6 with a view toward Matthew 21 and Palm Sunday. And I think you'll, hopefully you'll see that as, as we go. The title of the sermon kind of implies it already, Four Horsemen, One Messiah, and a Donkey. So that's what we're going to be taking a peek at today. I think it's important to just, we're, we're, we're launching into Revelation 6 and multiple chapters ahead that can be very difficult. Um, difficult because of the conflicts that we see, difficult because of the judgments that we'll see, wonderful in terms of the assurance that we see, wonderful in terms of the victories that we see, but I just think it's very important to have the first five chapters really kind of situated in our hearts in a memorable way that help guide us through the remaining chapters. So in Revelation 1, remember, we saw the glorified Christ present and active and ministering to the seven churches that represent really all the churches between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. They were a literal seven churches, but they're representative of the struggles and the victories and the temptations that churches in every generation face. And I want to bring this up again, and Marcus had mentioned it this morning to me. Um, Revelation, precious ones, we're, we're going to be getting into a lot of prophetic things. Revelation at its core is meant to pastor your heart more than to prophesy to your heart. Even the prophecies serve underneath that goal to pastor you, not just to inform us, not to just, just give us some sort of idea about the days and times we're living in. God wants to touch our hearts. He wants to change our hearts. He wants to make us more like him in character and in mission. So let's remember that. So then Revelation 2 and 3, we see Christ moving among his churches. And as we see Christ more clearly, we see ourselves more clearly. And we've, we, we, we've talked about that in all of the studies of the seven churches. So thankful for Hugh and how he concluded the study of the seven churches last week in the, in the uh, message to the Laodicean church. And he had such a burden on his heart for that message. And he has such a love for you on his heart. And I think both were communicated very well last week. So we see them in the grace that's at work in them, the suffering that was going on among them, the sin that was in them. No, didn't back away from that. And the temptations that were facing them and the call to overcome. Overcome. Remember how just again and again and again. Overcome. Overcome. How do we overcome? We go into chapter 4 and we behold and believe that our God is a sovereign God, king of kings, reigning on his throne. And if you haven't looked at that throne recently, it may be a good time to do it. And I hope you'll be doing that even a little bit today. And then we look at Revelation 5 in another way. How do we overcome? By beholding and believing that Christ's sinless life his, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, prove his worth as Savior, but not just as Savior, also his worth to break the seals and open the scroll. And from that very beginning, after he ascended into heaven and he took, he sat down at the right hand of God, he had taken the scroll, he broke open the seals to inaugurate the end times. And not just to inaugurate it, but to fulfill it. And not to just fulfill it, but to be with us every step of the way. He is in control. Maybe, can you say that with me? He is in control. And that's going to be very much a reminder through, through the morning. So this is what I ask you to consider. I think Revelation 4 and 5 are the theological center of this book. And I, I hope that as we complete the study, I, I hope that you'll go back and you go, oh, yeah, that totally is the an anchor. But it's not just the theological center of this book. 
I think God wants this to be the theological center of our lives. And why is that? Well, we're going to go into chapter 6 and beyond. And that theological center of God ruling and reigning in sovereignty, the triumph of the Lamb, redeeming souls, and, and ensuring that God's plan for justice and redemption is undefeated and comes to, pla- comes to pass, and, and all things becoming new at the end. All of that is going to be a sure foundation for us to stand upon as we study about the end times that we are living in now between Christ's first and second coming and to see the unfolding of God's punishment of evil, of the purification of the church, and in increasing our passion to proclaim the gospel. So would you begin with me in in Revelation chapter 6 as we read God's word. And then we'll go over to Matthew uh, chapter 21. Just remember context. This is the continuing vision coming out of Revelation 5. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider, its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And so... Now, let's turn our attention from those four riders to another rider on a different kind of beast of burden. And so would you, would you go to Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives... When Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, the, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, Heavenly Father, would you, would you write your inspired word upon our hearts? Uh, God, we are not just asking for an academic study of a book. We're asking for your living word to transform us and change us and equip us to live 
for the mission that Jesus began and that Jesus will complete when all nations, when all nations have been reached for the gospel. We love you, we praise you, and we need you. We feel our need for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Dennis Johnson and his commentary in Revelation has been a real help for me um, over these months. And he gives a, a really helpful illustration, I think, that can help us in our interpretation of the book of Revelation. Kind of a funny place to go with this, in this, but I think the illustration is helpful. I think it's understandable for all of us and just the culture that we're living in. He points us to the way an NFL football game is broadcast or the way a movie is made. Both the football game and the movie have a beginning and an end, but the broadcast is seen from a variety of different angles in order to help the viewer better understand the big picture. So in football, I mean, so any of you guys who are NFL or college like to watch NFL or, or guys or girls who like to watch NFL football or college uh, football, it's amazing. So I'm 62 years old. It's amazing what watching a football game today looks like compared to the old days, to the old days. I mean, it is wild. You see, you, you see the quarterback's perspective of the game. There's cameras that are just focused on the, quarter, the play of the quarterback. You see the middle linebackers. <laughs> I don't know why. I get this. Oh, yeah, I do remember why. There used to be a linebacker years ago named Dick Butkus. And so you know, older people are going, yeah, I remember Dick Butkus. And he had this goofy commercial about knocking people out, and it was just nuts. Anyway, that just flashed in. So you, you see the perspective of the middle linebacker. You see the cornerback's perspective. You see the coach's perspectives. You see that. You even see the perspective from a Goodyear blimp. I mean, so, so you, get, you get one game, but it's experienced in very different ways depending on the angle that you're viewing it from. How many of you saw Spider-Man, The Last Spider-Man? Lots of, lots of us saw that. Isn't that another beginning and ending story that was told from multiple different angles? All one story, but it's told from multiple different angles. In fact, it needed three Spider-Men to tell the story, right? You needed three Spider-Men guys. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm so sorry. I'm just realizing I give away stuff and I shouldn't probably do that. Anyway. Um, so it's telling the story of three Spider-Men and their perspective. It, tells us, it was telling the story of the bad guys. And I don't know my Spider-Man stuff enough to be able to name them, but, um, but it was telling the story from their perspective and, and what they were like and how they came to be bad guys. And, and, and all of this from different angles so that when we saw it, we would have a better understanding of the big picture, right? And I think in a very similar way. That's what God does in the book of Revelation. It serves us so well. It helps us better understand God's sovereignty and salvation and in judgment through the entire period of the end times. So we're not going to be seeing in Revelation an end times defined as just the final seven years of human history, though that is in it. But the focus is not, it doesn't isolate it to the final seven years of human history. It begins with the ascension of Jesus to the, to the right hand of God, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and his coming again in victory one day soon, we pray. It's different angles of the same redemptive plan. God has given us the book of Revelation in a similar way. It moves us from the starting point of the end times, beginning with Christ's first coming, and moves us to the ending point of the end times when God makes all things new. But it doesn't do so in, in a historical, chronological, narrative kind of a way. What I mean by that is how many of us have, have heard Revelation taught in, in almost this timeline in which every historical character, and so you might have seen the, the, the timelines up, and, and so they'll bring up Hitler, and they'll go, oh, you know what, Hitler was right here on this timeline, and, and, and so like today, what would it be today? Is, is Putin, is Putin on that timeline? Yeah, Putin's on that timeline. And what ends up happening is we tend to force current events as the interpretive voice of revelation. Now, so guess, guess what? Is Hitler in the story of the end times? You bet he is. Is Putin in the story of the end times? You bet he is. 
But the intent of Revelation wasn't just to thrill us and make us ooh and ah that we, oh, we know where we are in the chronological timeline of world history. No, we're getting a better understanding of the holiness of God and the the judgment sin deserves and God's power over Satan and evil and the assurance a Christian has that, that he or she will be able to stand complete regardless of how hard life gets. That's what this story of Revelation does for us. It helps us see judgment and redemption from a variety of angles that help us better understand the big picture. We're going to see this in in the lines of repetition. Repetition is really the best teacher, isn't it? None of us ever learn anything because we heard it once. Never. Repetition is always the best teacher. I always encourage parents, don't think that repetition means you're not a good parent. Why don't my kids listen? Because repetition's the best teacher. You're doing great. Keep repeating. Keep repeating. The theologians call this recapitulation. Particularly when we study the seal judgments, the the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. The seal judgments are a view of what is taking place between the first and second coming of Christ. The trumpet judgments are another angle on what is taking place between the first and second coming of Christ. And the bold judgments are just another angle on what is taking place between Christ's first coming and when he comes again. Each are going to have different emphases. And, in, and you will see a growing intensification as redemptive, the redemptive storyline proceeds toward the second coming of Jesus. There, there really, just the book itself will show us there's a growing intensification. But there's a lot of recapitulation. There is a lot of repeating of things so that God's word will be written on our hearts. And so that we will believe that the Lamb has triumphed. And that God is in control. And that we won't, we won't, we won't be like Chicken Little. I'm not, I just was not raised. I was raised on Sports Illustrated. Isn't that terrible? I was raised, I was, I was not raised with Mother Goose stories. I, would not, I wasn't raised in the Bible either. I was, I was, but isn't Chicken Little the one that kept running around saying, the sky is falling? I think it, what, what today, I think what it is, is you watch Fox News, the sky is falling. You watch CNN, you, I, the last, People on earth that should be running around saying that the sky is falling is a Christian. Because we have a sure and steady hope that Jesus is in control. That's what Revelation is strengthening us. It's, it's giving us a spiritual backbone and a tender heart. That's what the Revelation is meant to accomplish. We're also going to see how God uses biblical prophecy in ways that that include both a partial fulfillment as well as final fulfillments. That's why you'll see a picture of final judgment. You'll see that in the seal judgments. You'll see it in the trumpet judgments. And you'll see it in the bowl judgments. But if you were just reading those judgments as though they were just this chronological narrative, that, that this is the order of world history, you would come away from that going, wait, are there three final judgments? No, it's recapitulating the same story from different camera angles. So that these recapitulations grow our understanding and our faith and our hope and confidence in God's sovereign plan to punish evil, to redeem the lost, to have full and final victory over Satan. And all this so that we can grow in the character and the mission of Christ until we see him face to face. So perhaps you can see why Revelation would have given such hope to the seven churches. Now see, we can't lose that, right? We have to know what did this book mean to them at that time, the original audience. How would it strengthen their faith? How would it give them courage and boldness and a heart to repent of sin and a desire to grow in godliness? How would this book affect them in the first century? We have to be faithful to that. And just relegating the end times to some, I mean, can you imagine? You're the, you're the first century church, and if all revelation is, is something that just affects the, seven, the, the people living in the last seven years of human history, how is that going to help me with the emperor Domitian calling for Christians to call him Lord 
and to recant of calling Christ Lord. How does that help that generation of churches? And then don't you have to bring it up to your day too? How does this book apply to you and your heart and how you raise children and what's the purpose of marriage and why we do our work the way we do it and why we want to go into all the world and even risk lives when God calls for it to bring the gospel to all nations. Revelation is about today, not just one day in the future. It is about that day, so don't forget that. But it is about today, too. It's what God is doing then for that first generation of churches now and what he'll continue to do in the future in punishing evil and purifying his church and growing our passion to proclaim the gospel between the first and second coming of Jesus. So I hope this helps you. I know that that was a long introduction, but I hope this helps you as we study the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Can I just do a survey? How many of you have heard that phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Have you, how many of you have heard that? Quite a few, probably a little bit of our older generation. We're going to study the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're going to see that they were not only riding, the, 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 this book of Revelation is not just telling us, oh, they're going to ride in those last seven years. No. I think this book of Revelation is telling us They've been riding. They're riding today. And they will be riding until Jesus comes again. So I think that's what I hope you'll see today and how God is in complete control of it all. So our main point this morning is the triumph of the Lamb assures that God is in complete control as the four horsemen are sent out to accomplish his purposes in the punishment of evil, the purification of the church, and the proclamation of the gospel. So let's look at first, just, there's just two points. The first is the four horsemen, punishment, purification, and proclamation. And that's Revelation 6, 1 through 8. The issue, so, Precious ones, you're going to see this again and again. You know, the, um, there was a quote I almost included from J.I. Packer about, how it just seems that the church has backed away from teaching and preaching about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is a significant part of our Bibles. I don't know if we feel like we have to apologize for God or whatever. So please be prepared to watch God not let evil go unpunished. God will punish evil. God punishes unrepentant sin. But how does he go about doing it? And, and, and so you're going to see some things here about these four horsemen. But I think as you kind of take a picture, a step back and look at all that the Bible has to say on this topic, you'll get a better sense of how God goes about bringing judgments today that are really warnings and foreshadowings of the worst judgment to come if, if people don't repent. So this, these judgments are sobering. Um, they're even tear-producing in regard to how God will bring about judgment. But, the, but directly bringing about judgment is, the only, is not the only way God does it. Directly confronting Satan and casting him into the lake of fire, that's not, that's not the only way God brings judgment. Romans 1, if you haven't read Romans 1 recently, Romans 1 is a great reminder to us that one of the, one of the strongest and regular ways that God brings judgment into our world is letting you be you. Maybe is that way to put it. Does that kind of make sense? There's, a, there's common grace that restrains us. We, we call this total depravity. So here's maybe another way. People are born into this world dead in sin and transgression. They're, they're, they're totally depraved. That doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be at any given time, but it means that sin devastated the human race. Sin, sin affects everything, the way we think and the way we feel and the way we choose. It, it affects us all. But God doesn't let us get as bad as we could be. It's with common grace. He, he brings in government. He brings in laws. Even the fear of man affects us, doesn't it? It's something we, don't, we don't always yell. I mean, how many of us? We yell at home. <laughs> but 
I mean, goofy illustration. Have you ever done this? You're, you're, you're upset, you're impatient with your kids, and you're, you're, you're doggone it, you want to get over just yelling, but you're still finding yourself yelling. And you're about to say, would you go, and the phone rings, would you go clean your, hello? <laughs> Why? Because there's this restraining things, and right there, because, because I feel like I'm winning when I'm yelling in my home. But if I pick up the phone and yell at that person, I'm not winning, am I? I need to win the phone call, too, so I'll be nice on the phone while I tell you to clean your room. Does that, does that make sense? So there are these restraining influences, the church, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. There are restraining influences in the world that keep us from being our true selves. There's a phrase, I mean, you hear this, well, I'm just wanting to be the best me I can be. Can we have a lesson on total depravity? <laughs> can, we, can we have a lesson of what, if God were to give you over to who you really are without him, it's a life essentially with, I don't want God in my life. I want to sit on the throne of my life. I want all the glory I can get. I want all the selfish gratification I can get. And God says, you know how I'm going to bring judgment into your life? I'm going to at times back off some of the common grace. I'm going to let you experience it. It's the worst thing that God can do. It's one of the worst things that God can do is to give you over. That's a phrase in Romans 1. Give you over to your sinfulness. I encourage you, please go read it this afternoon because you'll just see it. It's this, it's, it's like, I forget the analogy, but it's like a toilet bowl. It just gets worse and worse. And it seems to spin faster and faster out of control the more God gives humanity into its sinfulness. And I think, I think that informs some of the things that we're going to see here in God bringing judgment and justice uh, into our world prior to the final judgment that he will, will bring. So keep that in mind as we start to unpack uh, the riders on these horses. The first is the white horse. When you see the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, some, some would contend, there's various interpretations of this. So some would, some would say that, that this white horse is representative of the unstoppable power of the gospel. Because it's a white horse. This is pretty good imagery, right? First, your first, maybe your first thought. I think even a lot of non-Christians have heard the imagery of Jesus coming on a white horse, crowned with many crowns, right? Sharp two-edged sword. That's coming in Revelation 19. I don't know. Let's, let's think about that. Is, is this Jesus coming on a white horse here? Some have thought it, it's, it's Jesus sending the gospel into the world. It's Jesus proclaiming that in spite of how bad life will be, the gospel's unstoppable. Jesus will always be our biggest hope. Never give up on somebody you've been praying for for the last 15 years to be saved because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not their free will, not trying to convince them, but that God, when he's tired of people resisting him, when it's an end for them to resist him, God is the one who can open the hardest human heart. And you know how we know that? Because he did yours. <laughs> because your heart was just as hard as anybody else's heart. You are saved because of amazing sovereign grace. Oh, hallelujah. That's our hope, isn't it? Oh, oh my hope is in God opening people's hearts, not on, on their, not on their willingness to listen or, or, or choose. I'd rather believe in God's mercy and grace than just on somebody's will. Um, so let's just, so, so, so this is, it could be, this could be. Um, our post-millennial millennial friends would, would, would kind of interpret it this way, that, that this gospel is going to go forth and, and ultimately it's going to so affect the entire world that it's, there's, there's going to be a, almost a Christianization of our world um, with the power of the gospel. I love that picture of the gospel. Precious one. So here's where I think, this is where, where I take that illustration. I don't think the text is saying that, but it's a good application. It's a good thought. Here, this is really good news. How many, how many of us are experiencing that the love of the world is getting colder and colder and colder? So you see it, in, see it in your families, extended families. You see it in your workplaces. You see it everywhere. Well, that, I believe that is true. I believe Revelation will show us that there will be an increasing coldness, an increasing hardness of the human heart. But I also believe that for the people of God, 
that we're going to grow more on fire, more consumed with the gospel, more in love with Jesus, more willing to lay our lives down for the sake of somebody hearing the good news of Christ. So as the world gets colder, the, the heart of Christians gets more fiery. So I think that's a great application. I don't know that that's what this, this uh, text is, is bringing about. Um, because uh, Jesus said that, that we're to be aware, uh, beware of many antichrists that will come. Some have seen this as, as the antichrist coming somewhat disguised as an angel of light in, in bringing and allowed to bring deception and destruction into the earth. Well, we know that that's a warning in scripture. I don't know that that's what this text is saying. Some say it's Jesus himself because of Revelation 19, but there are just significant differences between this writer and, and that writer. Uh, the one in 19 is for sure Jesus. This writer just has, just has a bow, an arrow, you could say. He has a singular, it's not a crown of crowns, it's not diadems. You know, when you think of Revelation 19, it's crown him with many crowns, the diadems and all this glory. And this one, this one is more just the wreath that a military king, a, a king would, would wear when he's going out to conquer with military force and tyranny. So I, I don't think that this is Jesus here. Remember, we've got to let the Old Testament interpret the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see this image before. So I think that helps us interpret. And in the images that we see in the Old Testament, particularly in Zechariah 6, and you can go, go pick that up on your own, read Zechariah 6, and you're going to see that, see that this, this four, these four riders really form a unit. Um, I would say that this white horse is, is essentially the introductory way that God is withholding some of his common grace and, and, and reducing some of the restraints he's had in place. And what this, is, what this has been doing over history is there's a growing lust for power. There's a growing un, unrestrained greed, a desire to conquer, a desire to rule, dictate, and dominate over people for selfish gain and glory. I pray for Putin and his salvation, but I also pray if he's not going to repent, God, would you please judge him quickly? This may sound harsh. But, he, but as I read about his life, even the people that know him well say he seems to be increasingly out of control. I think that's this unrestrained lust for power and for glory. It's why, because there are always promises that your life will be better under our dictatorship. Haven't <laughs> we heard that over the years? You just follow us. We're going to make your life better. And it's white because they, they believe they always have a righteous cause, right? Haven't you even, listen, I don't know how many of you have done prison ministry or maybe the Lord saved you out of a life that, of crime and, and you were in prison. There's a lot of supposed righteousness in prison. There's a lot of people who just are constantly proclaiming their own innocence. And, and, and if they are guilty, it's not really because I'm guilty. It's because of the other people and the education I had or the parents I had. They, this is a white a horse on a, um, a rider on a white horse because he thinks his cause is righteous. And, he, and he's justified to use ex, ex, uh, excessive force and to dominate and dictate. And I think that really sets the tone for now the, the unleashing of the next three riders. I think they're all one unit. So the red horse is really, you could be defined as God allowing and using war as a part of history and a part of the way he brings judgment between the first and second comings of Jesus. He pulls back his restraining grace, resulting in people being given over to war. He, he allows evil to take peace from the earth and did you notice he's not just saying hey this is happening just this little little tribe in this little remote part of, of of the world that hardly any of us know about he doesn't say it that way he says that these things have so much significance that they affect the earth not just small and limited skirmishes and there will be people slaying each other. And the word slay is unique. We've seen it already in Revelation. It was the same word used in Revelation 5 of the Lamb of God being slaughtered and a sword used for persecution and the death of Christians as martyrs. So there, there, there is not just that sinners are killing sinners in this. 
but it's also significantly that Christians are not immune from trouble. Our Savior is our, is our emblem that following God requires sacrifice. And there will be tears. And there's victory. But we can't just think that we're preaching to Christians who just are living on vacation. I just, I just, I just, sometimes I repent over sermons I preached years ago and and just, it's, it's almost like, I just, oh, let me just help you have a better marriage. Let me just help you raise your kids. Let me just do this. Here's how you can get a promotion at work. Here's how you can stay drug free. Here's how you can do all these things. And what's the ultimate goal? Oh, your happiness. You woke up this morning in a war zone. Satan hates your kids. He wants to do everything he can to blind them. Actually, they're already blind in sin. I think what Satan does is he says, okay, how can I, how can I make blindness worse? And I think it's almost like with his lies and deceit, it's like he's putting mud on blind eyes. That's the world we woke up in today. We're not in heaven yet. Our flesh is still warring against our spirit. We need a mighty God. And we, and we have a mighty God. We have him. Oh, we have him. And so we get a picture here that, yes, believers are going to be in the midst of this. And many of them will, will experience persecution even unto death. God uses these judgments to punish evil. And this is one of the ways he purifies the church. You guys, please come Good Friday night. I, I just... I would ask you, change your schedules to be here Friday night. The, the man, we can't say because we're broadcast, because we're of the live stream. We can't give a lot of details, but this is, maybe you've met him. It's our, our, our church planning pastor in Asia. And you're going to see a man who so treasures Jesus that he's, he's already made plans with his family, etc., to be arrested. He's not going to compromise and so he's, he's made sure his family is okay. He's, because why? What is his, here's his philosophy. And Alan, you say it better than I do. But he, he, says, he says, well, if God sees fit to throw me in jail because of my faith, there's a harvest field to be won for Jesus there. Please come. You need that kind of people. You need the word. But God wants to give you those kind of people in your life to show you what his grace can do. And, and, and all of this, not to just mature us, but to mobilize, mobilize us into alleviating all suffering, especially eternal suffering. I'm going to bring that up a couple of times here. So let's think about the first century church. Rome slaughtered countless people in their pursuit of world domination. And of course that affected the early church. Let's go beyond Rome. Hitler and Nazi Germany. Remember, they were responsible for the deaths of some 6 million Jewish men, women, and children. Mao in China slaughtered tens of millions in his political, of his political enemies. Pol Pot, a name that kind of gets forgotten. Ruler, evil ruler over Cambodia. At one time, Cambodia had 10 million citizens. Pol Pot slaughtered two million of them. He slaughtered one-fifth of his nation. See, that's why, I, I, oh, you guys, I'm raising my voice. I'm not mad at you. <laughs> I just think we just, we're just kind of wimpy because we don't have problems in the United States and we reduce Jesus to being a butler to, to serve us our needs rather than our commander calling us into action. Joseph Stalin killed more than 20 million of his own citizens. Some say the number is closer to 30 million. And all of this just in the 20th century, 41 million deaths and casualties in World War I, 60 million died in World War II. And now we have Putin in Ukraine and China and North Korea and Iran and ISIS and the Taliban all rattling their sabers. Do you see why I say the rider on the red horse still rides? He's still writing. We're living in the end times. Parents, this should be affecting the way we raise our kids. 
I think, I, I think, man, I totally get, I used to believe that the end times were just a seven year period at the end of time. But it did not fan the fire of my heart. I'm a procrastinator. I'm the guy who says, well, if I got time, I usually waste time. And I think that's a story of a lot of United States Christians. I think that's, that we think, well, we got time, and we probably won't even see that time. And we end up taking this amazing salvation that God has given us by grace alone, and we reduce it to the level of our personal happiness. Oh, God. Oh, God. Use these end times to sharpen our, our vision and fix our eyes upon Jesus. Revelation 5 and 6 is a black horse. It's speaking of scarcity and famine, but not only famine. This is probably related to the effects of war. It's an economic upheaval. It gives us a vivid description in the, in the phrase about a soldier being given a daily ration of one quart of wheat. That would be what would feed a soldier for one day. Three quarts of barley typically would feed a family. It's not, it wasn't as healthy. It wasn't known to be as nutritious. That's why it, co- it costs less. And so you see that implied here. A denarius was a day's wage. So normally a quart of wheat would cost about an eighth of a denarius. Well, that's good news. Because that means you can pay your rent. Right? That means you can pay your car note. Or your camel note, I guess. I don't know what would have been the note here. Um, But that's not what was happening, was it? This illustration is that a soldier's having to use an entire day of pay just to eat. There's no way he can pay the other expenses. It's an issue of supply and demand, to be sure. It's an issue of extreme inflation. And this illustration, the, the theologians say that they think this is probably about a price gouging that's about 10 times higher than what the normal price should be. You notice though the oil and wine weren't touched. Uh, some of the writers are saying, well, that's because they were more resistant to drought, but not, I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's about primarily about agriculture. I think it's about a God of mercy. You guys, when we're looking at the judgments that, that flow out in Revelation 6 through 18, 19, remember this, that every time God's bringing a judgment, it's also an offer of mercy. Every time, every time there's hardship and sorrow, there's an invitation to come to the one who will dry, dry every tear from every eye. So, that, so that's why it's not fully encompassing the world. There's, there's going to be, there's going to be things to eat and drink, um, but, but there's the offer of mercy. Did you know about 2.8 million people in France, 15% of the population starved to death between 1692 and 1694? That's three years. 15% of the population died. 1695, a famine strikes Estonia, fifth of the population died. In 1696, nearly a third of the population in Finland died. A third? A third of the population? Today, some 800 million people don't have enough to eat. That's about one in eight people worldwide. How should the church look at this? When we're looking at this, you know what? We don't say the sky is falling and run and hide. You know what we do? We run to the battle. What do we do? We alleviate suffering. And not not just suffering, especially eternal suffering. So we go and we want to feed and we want to clothe and we want to do all these things with the gospel as the backdrop and inspiration for all that we do. The church is mobilized. But please know that the rider on the black horse still rides. The last rider is the rider on the pale horse. The, really, the word really is greenish. And what a, what a great way to talk. It's talking about sickness and disease and, and death. And then how many of you heard that phrase? You're, you're looking a little green today. That's what it's really talking about. It says death and, death and Hades are following this horse. Hades is not the word for hell. 
uh, that's commonly used for hell, but it's, it's a place of the dead. So it's essentially accentuating how prevalent death is in this time of judgment and punishment of evil. Disease and sickness is, is happening more frequently. There's, there's more issues happening and to the point that a quarter of the earth dies. Again, notice it's severe. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't back away from the severity of God's judgment. That's how bad sin is. Do you see your sin as horrible as the Bible says it is? That's how bad sin is. That's how evil Satan is. And yet, God in judging is offering mercy. He would be doing this right now. There may be someone in this room this morning, and you've just been playing church games. You might be a young person, you come to church just because it, it makes mom and dad not as upset with you. You may be, you may be thinking that if, maybe if I, maybe if I get, kind of clean up my act a little bit, it'll help me on my job and all these things. But you're dead as a stone in your heart. And maybe you're hearing these things for the very first time. And you're realizing, I am still living under the righteous judgment of God. I've not repented of my sin. I've not put faith in Jesus to save me and change me and to devote my life to his glory. I've never, I've never really done that. Well, in the midst of all this story, in, this, in the, the truth in this book, in the midst of what you see going around, you know, it's amazing because the United States, it seems to be getting, it's, the world's shrinking in on the United States, isn't it? And who, who would know that all that's going on between Russia and Ukraine would have the impacts that it's having on, in our country? The world's, the world's closing in. God's justice comes close to call you to repent, to draw you into the loving arms of Jesus, to give you a peace and a joy and a hope and a future that you couldn't even have dreamed was possible. Oh, please, turn to Jesus. You see this imagery used in Ezekiel 14 and Leviticus 16 in regard to all these things. And you know some of these things. The bubonic plague began in East and Central Asia, went to Europe, North Africa. Estimates between 70, there's just different ways that people, I guess, calculate things. 75 to 200 million died. Get this, though. More than a quarter of the entire population of Europe and Asia combined died. When you think of that quarter of the earth will perish, oh, that's not possible. We need to know some history. Because the four horsemen have been riding. In England, four out of 10 people died. Four out of 10 people in England died. The city of Florence had 100,000 people, 50,000 died. I could go into other smallpox issues and the Spanish flu, and today there's COVID, and I know that, that I almost, Lord, I don't even know if I bring COVID up because COVID's just controversy now. It's, but there was a sickness. But I, what I would say is I don't know that ever in the history of the world that there's been biological warfare being prepared the rider on the pale horse still rides. Uh, Michael Wilcock, in his message in Revelation, this is in your notes, he says this, the terrifying events of the first four seals, which those who have to live through them might imagine to be signs of the Christ's return and of the close of the age, are in fact the commonplaces of history. The four horsemen have been riding out over the earth from that day to this and will continue to do so. This would have brought great comfort to those first seven churches. And you're going to, well, how in the world does this bring comfort? Well, because Rome, their arch enemy, their enemy of Christ and his church, demanded Christians affirm that Caesar is Lord, 
commanded, uh, that put Christians in prison, killed them, forbade them from buying and selling. Keep that phrase in mind in terms of as we march through <laughs> Revelation. Stop, you couldn't buy or sell unless you followed the party line. And even to many of them to death because of their faith. John's vision of Jesus opening the seals reminds the persecuted church that not even the great nation of Rome was able to withstand the sealed judgments of the Lamb. And neither will Russia, neither will North Korea, neither will Iran. And even, listen, our country is no shining star. Evil will not win. The king of kings will bring all things under submission to him. And so the church then is being encouraged that, they, they, that God will give them grace to stand. Every generation of Christians has something that makes them think, they're, this is the end times, or we're living in the, no, we're living in the end times. And that Christ is coming back tomorrow. Well, they they were in the end times. <laughs> they, they were in the end times. I, they, listen, I just can't keep saying this hard enough. I think that just remembering we're living in the end times will affect the way you ch make choices and you're following Christ and you're gathering for worship with believers and you're evangelizing the lost. I mean, shouldn't these seals, shouldn't this, isn't this enough to get us out of these seats and onto the streets and seeking to win people to Jesus with the gospel? How hard are our hearts that we haven't been living this way? Well, thank God for his word to soften our hearts and get our eyes fixed on the sovereign one, the triumph of the lamb, to see people saved and that the gospel go to all people's and this is, there's, there's really good news in the midst of this. Matthew 24, again, something to go back and look at later. Jesus is actually, you can almost see this parallelism between what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 24 and what, what we're seeing unpacked in Revelation. Because he, Jesus gave the signs of the times. And remember, he said such things must happen. War and famine and rumors of war and all these things, they must happen, but the end has not yet come. And then he calls them birth pangs. I want you to think about that. Let's just carry that illustration through to the end. So Putin in Russia, birth pain? You bet. This is such a minimal thing compared to what other believers are going through around the world. $4 gas. Birth pain? Well, yeah. Not, not one of the bigger contractions, but it's a birth pain. But this, and this is really this is the scary thing about a man talking about labor pains. Because <laughs> there are times I think, ladies, I think you want to throw a shoe at me when I try to talk about these things. You probably should. You probably should. Um, there's, there's wars, rumors of wars, famines, death, wars, slaying, persecution of the church, martyrdom. All these things happen. Wasn't labor starts and the contra there's a contraction. It's not pleasant. It's bearable, but it's not pleasant. Get your attention, though. It makes you start thinking a little differently, right? I'll never forget, you know, Jan and I wanted to labor at home as long as we could um, before we went to the hospital. And, and uh, so, so when contractions first started for Jan, she was on the phone. and Mom, I, I think I'm in labor. Oh, hang on, Mom. Hang on. Okay, okay. But now it gets a little bit more intense. <laughs> she, she's doing children's ministry today, but I think, uh, I know she would, I'm going to risk saying. <laughs> um, but the contractions get you thinking differently, and they, they, they mobilize you differently. Because as these birth pangs are happening, you're going, ooh, we need to have a sharper focus on some pretty main thing, main things, right? And so where, we, where I knew, it's called emotional signposts. And you, you, they said there would be a definitive difference when, between how she's laboring and when she needs to go to the hospital. Um, and the difference came was she had horrible back labor with Will. And <laughs> she was down on all fours and we were trying to help her and rub her back and all these kind of things. And our dog, little miniature snouser at the time, 
just, I just sensed like something was wrong. And so the dog comes, and he would just come and snuggle next to her, and he would go, and he's whining, and, and finally, Jan loved that dog, but finally, here comes another birth pain, another contraction. She looks at that dog, <laughs> and what seemed like superhuman strength, whoa! The dog, the dog's flying away. But think about that. So that sends us in a different direction than we were living before. We went to where the action was. <laughs> we, we went, and so here's, but here's the, it gets to a place where there's contraction, but then there's relief, right? The United States, we've lived in quite, a, quite often a lot of relief. But then there's another contraction. And then there's a break, there's a relief there's a break between the contractions. But then the contractions come so fast and furious. You don't even know that the one ended when another one's beginning. But what, what do you know? That just around the corner, you're, you're probably in transition by now. And just around the corner, <laughs> you're going to enter into new life. A new life is going to be born, and you are going to have a new life. And I think that's what God wants to do with these things, is for us not to, oh, freak out and think, oh, there goes my best life now and all this stuff. It's to realize that all of this is God sovereignly. That's why 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, have to be the theological center of our hearts. That, that God is moving all of this toward a, a, a world, an eternity, where all things are new. There won't be any more war. There won't be any more tears. There won't be any more cancer. No more miscarriages. No more abortion. That's what God is doing with all these birth pangs. That's, he's moving us forward to those things. I'm just going to fast forward to the end because I didn't, I didn't have the, con, the, the labor story in my notes, so I'm going to have to cut out some things. So take a peek at the quote that we have there. Let's turn our attention. Alan, you can bring the team up. Uh, let's turn our attention now from four men, four riders on four horses to another rider on another beast of burden called a donkey. One of the ways we know that God is in complete control of those days, those seasons, those epochs of history that seem out of control is because what happened during Holy Week. And so you remember the story. At first, it seemed like there was a lot of good happening. Here's Jesus riding in on a donkey, his fulfilling prophecy. He is the conquering king. He is the lion of Judah. Remember, we read that in, in Revelation 5. He's the lion of Judah. Interesting, the lion of Judah riding on a donkey to conquer. Let's just, you don't see any donkeys in Revelation uh, 6, do you? No donkeys there. The donkey was a picture of someone great coming to offer peace to those who really needed him. This is how he's coming to conquer. So the lion rode on a donkey to become the lamb. Precious ones. Oh, I've, made, I've made much of, of Revelation 6 this morning, and I think it was appropriate. But you know what we're to make much more of? The lamb that rode in to Jerusalem to face Good Friday, all of these statistics, even there's probably something very personal for you that you felt like, I have never felt so out of control in my life. Is there, is there a, something I could put my feet on, something I could stand upon? Well, think about Good Friday. The lion rode the donkey, and now the lamb is being slain. And if there was ever a day that seemed completely out of control, it was this one. Because here's this man who has healed lepers, fed the sick, walked on water, ruled over storms, raised the dead. 
that he's dying? I don't think we would have ever felt so hopeless as, as the people did at that, at that time. It looked like he was out of control, didn't it? That's why we call it Good Friday. Because the worst day in human history became really the best day for sinners to be saved from the judgment their sins deserved because the innocent Lamb of God was bearing the wrath for those who deserved it. Oh, sing. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me?